We are here with Ron Rubin, who worked in the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and has written for Weekly Standard, National Review, and many other outlets about uh, the CFPB and other related issues. Thank you for joining the Discourse Podcast, Ron. Nice to be here. To start off, you were one of few Republicans to ever be in the CFPB, correct? Well, you know, obviously you don't take a poll and you don't know what party everybody is, but it was kind of understood that everybody there was a Democrat. Uh, you, you didn't, basically, if you were a Republican, you, you didn't let anybody else know. Um, there was a statistics uh, came out saying that something like 573 political donations went to Democrats and one went to Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of laugh. I said, well, I, I don't know if those statistics are correct because I don't know who the one person would have been since I didn't give any donations. Um, but it was it was really very understood that that everybody there was pretty much a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And what led you to work at the CFPB in the first place? Well, I had uh, been an SEC enforcement attorney earlier in my career for about seven years, and I had first met uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, back when she was a Republican back in the '90s. Uh, she was a law professor at University of Pennsylvania, where I was a law student, and so. As uh, she started to get more famous with, uh, you know, the TARP stuff, um, I followed it, and and uh, it was, it, you know, it was very interesting. There very rarely is an opportunity to be at the start of a new uh, government agency, and so when the Dodd Frank Act passed, I immediately sent my uh, all my materials to uh, her uh, assistant. And what you know, what interested in me, me was the uh, really a lot of the structural stuff. Basically, seeing if you could build a government agency that would run without some of the bureaucratic inefficiencies that I saw at the SEC. Not that the SEC was really bad uh, at all, but you know, any bureaucracy has certain inefficiencies that develop over time. And so, some of it was kind of an organizational challenge, and some of it was you know. To me, I thought it was not going to be all that much different from the work that I did at the SEC, basically going after crooks, um, you know, in a different law, under different law, not the securities law, but the consumer banking laws, but basically stopping people from ripping consumers off. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's apparent from your writing, but which agency do you think is worse in terms of consumer protection, the SEC or the CFPB? Well, first of all, it's a different kind of protection. You know, invest, the the SEC's theory is, or, or the securities law theory, are disclosure. So if you actually put out your offering documents and say we're going to go spend your money on a Lamborghini, as long as you tell your investors if they want to give you the money, then then you know that's uh, that's your problem. Uh, but the you know the difference in the agencies really is in the structure, which has made the biggest difference that. The, the SEC is a bipartisan commission, uh, whereas the CFPB is one director appointed by the president who can't be removed except for cause before the end of his five-year term. And also the funding uh, is not funded through Congress and the congressional appropriations, but the funding is guaranteed through the Federal Reserve Bank, bank profits, basically. So you've cut off any kind of uh, legislative or executive check on the agency and that's really what's created all the problems. So between the two structures uh, certainly 
the SEC, which has you know been around now what over seventy five years or so, uh, or eighty years, um, you know, is a much better run organization and much more stable. Uh, I tell people, you know, I worked at the SEC for seven years, and honestly. I, it was never in my mind that this agency is being run by a Democrat or Republican. Uh, you know, it changed a couple times while I was there. And it just, you, you, as a, an employee coming in, as an enforcement attorney, you just never really noticed that there was a huge political shift when there was a shift in the administration. Whereas we've seen here, what, you know, what's going on with this shift in administration, it's been enormous uh, upheaval at the agency, at the CFPB now. So. And... Uh, when did you leave the CFPB? Uh, toward the end of um, 2012. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And would you say that um, you, it was your duty to blow the whistle on what was happening there through writing your articles like a National Review? Well, you know, it's funny. The first article I wrote was uh, this long 7,000-word piece for Bloomberg called the, uh, the Identity Crisis at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And it was more about the internal cultural clash between the people that come over from the FTC and the people that come over from the banking regulators. Um, you know, I was a, at the time I was a partner at Hunt and Williams after I left the CFPB. And so as a law firm partner, clients don't want somebody who's, you know, hostile with the agency. So, you, you know, it was a very, very soft criticism, and in fact, people, senior people at the CFPB said they, they thought my article was pretty good. Uh, they didn't necessarily agree with everything, but they certainly were not bothered by it. So while I was a law firm partner, it was only in 2014 that I wrote a Wall Street Journal uh, op-ed called um, When Disparate Impact Bites Back, which was about the... In, um, the indirect auto lending uh, campaign that they had were using disparate impact figures, discrimination figures, and then their own uh, performance review system showed really bad disparate impact uh, discrimination. So uh, that was really the first time I published anything that you know you would call critical of them. Um, and then you know that there were several hearings about that problem. Uh, I published another Wall Street Journal piece about. Um, uh, payday lending, and then I went to work for the Financial Services Committee on the Hill. So I, for a while, I couldn't publish at all because I was, you know, working for Congress. So, you know, it's, I, I never viewed it as a duty. Uh, I just viewed it as if I saw that there was something that the agency was doing that I thought was wrong or dishonest, um, then it was just something to write about, really. And you mentioned. Um being on Capitol Hill, uh, you were on Capitol Hill last week uh, where CFPB Director uh, Mick Mulvaney testified. Mind giving us a quick recap? Well, he, he testified first in front of uh, Congress and then the next day in front of the Senate. Um, the Dodd-Frank Act, which created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, requires a director to appear twice a year in front of each of those, uh, the Senate and the House. Uh, banking committee and, and finance uh, financial services committee in the house, and so uh, it, it was very interesting because um, you know uh, Mulvaney, who's now the acting director, had been on the financial services committee, so 
there was a, an interesting dynamic. It was even the Democrats were kind of friendly with him uh, since he'd been on the committee with them, or at least they knew him. Uh, and then the more interesting, or at least the potentially more explosive hearing was the next day in the Senate because Elizabeth Warren is on the Senate Banking Committee. Uh, but basically what was interesting in both cases was that he was coming in front of them saying, look, if you don't like what I'm doing, then restructure the CFPB and you know, then you'll have some say over what the director does. But um, as it stands right now, I mean, he made a point early on in both hearings saying, you know, according to the statute, I just have to appear. I don't even have to answer your questions, but I will answer your questions. Uh, that's, you know, that's how, that's how insulated the director is from any kind of real oversight. So he was really in front of them arguing that the, the structure of the CFPB should be changed. Mm -hmm. And did you... I mean, you were aware of the structure of the CFPB before you went to work there, correct? You know, it's funny. I, you know, I read the Dodd-Frank Act, or Title Ten of the Dodd-Frank Act, which is about a quarter of the Dodd-Frank Act, and I think it's about a thousand pages. Mm -hmm. I, I read it, and, and in fact, even when I was at the CFPB, I don't think I realized the potential problems with an absolute power kind of uh, uh, setup. I mean, m when I read it, I thought, well, I remember from the CFP, uh, from the SEC that there was, there's a lot of formalities that go into having a commission. You have to have, you know, these regular hearings, and you can't kind of communicate among commissioners behind the scenes, and everything is on the record. And so, you know, my thought going in was, well, this is, I guess, more efficient, but, you know, it didn't really... I, what, what, what the Republicans were kind of screaming about from the very beginning didn't really hit home to me until I saw it up close and, you know, uh, so I, yes, I was aware of the structure, but I didn't realize that it was going to be such a problem. Uh, so I want to uh, ask about recent uh, headlines surrounding the CFPB, uh, one that's right in front of me is from the Associated Press, Mulvaney gives big pay bombs to his hires at the consumer who is hired at a consumer agency. Uh, just read a quick uh, excerpt. Four of them are making $259,500 a year, and one is making $239,595. That is more than the salaries of members of Congress, cabinet secretaries, and nearly all federal judges, apart from those who sit on the Supreme Court. What's your reaction to these kind of uh, stories? Well, you know, it's if you compare what the media reports and what it doesn't report, um, you know, this is kind of a good example. I suppose you could be outraged about that, but, you know, there were, what, 20 people at least who were making that kind of money before, and you never heard it from the media. And now suddenly they report on it. On the other hand, uh, for example, the Daily Caller has reported on uh, some of the extravagances in their uh, renovation of the office building. Uh, it cost hundreds of millions of dollars, and nobody nobody in the mainstream media picks it up so you know the first question is okay I, that certainly is a legitimate uh, thing to report but how come nobody's been reporting on this for the last five six years and then if you want to kind of address it directly you'd say well Mulvaney is paying the top people the same as Corder is paying the top people so I suppose you could argue that um, you know that I, that's hypocritical that he um, is paying people the rate that he was complaining about. But on the other hand, you know, if you're one of those top people and you come in, 
and you're looking around at all the other people around you and they're all making more money than you that you know that makes you the martyr and some of those people are working very hard so um, he, he I don't I don't really see it as being a big deal it's it's more a matter of the the mainstream media doesn't have a whole lot else to report on these days as far as the CFPB goes um, but it, but it also kind of plays into that. Mulvaney is saying to Congress and the Senate, look, if you think I'm paying people too much, then go ahead and rein the director in and change, you know, change the pay scale, change the oversight, um, make me ask for money to pay the, for those people. Um, but the way it is right now, I can pay them, you know, whatever I want to pay them. Mm-hmm. And... Um, how do you respond to those who say we need to go after those who are go- giving subprime mortgages, um, knowing consumers won't likely be able to pay back the loan? For example, I recently um, had a conversation with a friend uh, who pointed out um, that there were issues with Countrywide over subprime mortgages and securities provided by AIG, all of which the CFPB investigated. Well, so. First of all, uh, you kind of have to step back and say that's one thing that the Dodd-Frank Act did and did it really require a whole agency to do that. Um, Second of all, you have to say, look, subprime mortgages, uh, it was a perfect storm and there were a huge number of problems that that led to that. So first of all, you had, dating back to the Clinton era, you had a, a policy, government policy of trying to have, you know, raise the homeowner level to people who couldn't afford the homes that they were in. So then you have the securitization of those uh, mortgages. And so the banks were not holding on to the mortgages the way they did in the past. So they were not as invested in making sure that they were, the loans were to people who could afford to pay them. Then you have the credit rating agencies who are looking at the packaged up mortgage securities and they were giving them you know AAA ratings when they really were not AAA securities and so there were a whole lot of things that kind of came together to cause that problem so the you know there def there definitely should have been and there it's it's not a bad thing to have uh, regulations in place that prevent that from happening again the question is are they doing it in the best way. Are the regulations the best regulations they could be? And really common sense, but also anybody in the industry will tell you that the one thing that is most important in preventing defaults is that people put a down payment on their mortgage, that they have basically skin in the game. And so when when they were preparing the first round of, of what these, they're called qualified mortgage rules, there was actually a, a, a requirement that you can't finance the entire mortgage, that you have to put in some money yourself as a homeowner. And the same uh, groups that complain of, quote-unquote, predatory lending, they basically came in and they said, well, if you require a down payment on mortgages, then people who, you know, uh, lower-income people won't be able to, uh, to afford to buy a home. And... So they dropped that requirement, and basically, in response to the, the the left-wing groups, they dropped the requirement in the rule. But the whole point was that was the point that if you can't afford to get a mortgage, you shouldn't get a mortgage. And so, even the the what well, you know what they ended up doing was a it was this very complicated system of debt debt to income ratios and 
basically what they did was they created a way for people who default on their mortgage to then blame the bank after the fact. So the, the idea is good, and there, there certainly should be, but it could have been done much, much more simply and much more effectively. And really because of political influence uh, from the left, it, it, the rule itself was not really the optimal rule. And how would you have addressed uh, the issues of um, mortgages which people would not be able to pay? I mean, we, don't we have the FDIC and FTC and all those agencies for a reason? Well, I mean, again, it, it didn't – the rule, whatever the rule was and wherever it came from, it didn't necessarily have to come from the CFPB. It could have come from all of the other banking agencies. They could have come together with one rule. So, you know, but it, it is certainly – it is a good thing. The, you know, the reason you want to have a rule like that is because of what happened in 2008, 2009, is that if you're, you know, you don't want to just say, well, so what? If you default and you lose your house, that's your problem. If you want to take out that loan, that's your problem because there's a certain fire effect to it that, you know, there's a domino effect. And with mortgages, which are very large amounts of money, you, you know, really can have a huge effect on the economy. It's an interesting contrast to another big topic these days, which is payday lending, which are basically four or $500 loans for two weeks for generally $15 per $100 you borrow. And so if you annualize that interest, it comes out very high. And what the CFPB is saying is that they want payday lenders to go through the same kind of are you able to repay it analysis for a four or five hundred dollar loan, as you would for a several hundred thousand dollar mortgage, and you know, in that case with payday loans, if people are defaulting on payday loans, generally speaking, you're not going to have that economy wide effect. It's more or less going to affect the lender, um, probably not even the borrower, because truth be told, uh, you know, if a, if somebody takes one of those small loans out and they just don't pay it back, it's pretty hard to go after them and get your money back if you're a lender. So. The, the lenders themselves in those cases also have uh, a real skin in the game, if you want to call it that, that, that they will be hurt. So they're motivated to make loans to people who they think can repay them. But borrowers could be hurt, would also be hurt because of their credit ratings and such, right? Right, but they're, in a sense, hurting themselves if they take out a loan sure. that they can't repay, as opposed to tanking the whole economy, which is what happened in 2008. Mm-hmm. Could we see um, agencies similar to the CFPB um, appear in the near future, you know, not subject to congressional oversight and have all those structural problems which you uh, talk about with the CFPB? Well, I mean, you know, the real question is, could we see the CFPB restructured? Um, That's it. You know, um, because it, there was a real – there was a, a – kind of a good logic for an agency like the CFPB. Because the banking agencies were more interested in the bank's safety and soundness, so they didn't look at violations of some of the consumer laws. That was really their secondary concern. And for example, take the subject of overdraft fees. Uh, If they're not being applied fairly, well, on the one hand, that's of course bad for consumers. On the other hand, the more fees that a bank collects, the safer and sounder the bank is. So there was kind of a, in a lot of ways, there was a built-in conflict um, among the agencies, or at least as far as what their primary concern was, which safety and soundness, and then their secondary concern, which was 
enforcing the consumer laws. So, you know, there is a good argument to be made uh, that there be a separate um, uh, agency that just does consumer laws. Um, it just needs to be done correctly. The agency doesn't need to be this absolute power, uh, you know, structure that really lends itself to abuse. But could we see agencies like the CFPB appear under President Warren, President Kamala Harris? Um, <laughs> well, you would have to have the same overwhelming majority of one party or the other to create uh, an agency, and I'm assuming it would have to be the Democrats. So you would basically have to reproduce uh, filibuster-proof Senate, a majority in the in the House, and the Democratic president, and that's pretty much a once-in-a-lifetime thing. So I would not expect it. But, you know, but given the agency, the CFPB as it exists now, there are actually are Democrats in the House who are sponsoring bipartisan uh, reform bills to basically make it into a, a bipartisan commission. And, you know, you didn't see that before the last election. Uh, but, you know, but they're saying, look, you know, they recognize the problem. It's just that in the Senate, um, Elizabeth Warren has a lot of sway, and she's you know vehemently against those kinds of changes. But I suspect that that bill in the House will actually pass fairly easily, and not and with a lot of Democrats voting for it. And speaking of that bill in the House, do you expect the House to pass uh, the recent Senate version um, modifying Dodd Frank um, House Financial Services? Committee Chairman um, Jeb Hensarling has expressed reservations. He wants to add to the bill, make it more conservative. What's your reaction? Well, so the Senate bill is very, very small changes, um, kind of around the fringe. It doesn't really change the CFPB much at all. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, you know, uh, Chairman Hensarling has been passing the Choice uh, Act, you know, in several versions of it for years, basically restructuring the CFPB bringing it under the uh, congressional appropriations process. And so, you know, if, if those two bills are reconciled, uh, it's possible that uh, Chairman Ensling could actually, you know, request some of those changes, but it's at least the feeling is that it's unlikely that that, that final bill then would pass the Senate. So given the slim margin in the Senate, basically, all that they feel like they can pass is a, you know very minor changes to it, and the question is, on the House side, um, are the Republicans willing to say, you know, we're not going to let any changes at all go through unless they're real changes as opposed to kind of changes around the around the the, the fringe. So um, that's kind of a political question, and uh, I guess that's the question is whether Republicans are willing to say, look, we're not going to go along with the Senate bill unless you actually make some more of the changes we've been asking for a while. But should they pass the Senate bill, which would be better than nothing, you know, especially benefiting uh, community banks? I mean, those changes are definitely good changes. Uh, but the question is, is this an opportunity to you know, to get a compromise where you get more changes beyond that. I mean, the, that's really kind of a strategic point. I mean, those changes in and of themselves are all good changes. But it's a question of, are you missing an opportunity to, to do more? And, and uh, in the House, uh, in his testimony in the House, Chairman Mul uh, Acting Director Mulvaney uh, actually said, you know, please, you know, don't, don't just uh, rubber stamp what the Senate sent you. 
you know, this is an opportunity for you to do it right. So, so his position, I believe, is, you know, don't just take the Senate bill, but go beyond it. And let's say that the House tries to make changes, but the Senate wouldn't pass them. Would the House just go ahead and pass the Senate version, then do nothing? Or is there that inflexibility? I, I mean, if you were asking me to handicap it, I think they probably will. But, um, you know, you, you, I don't, I don't actually, you know, I haven't counted the votes. Um, that's, you know, that, that, that really is the sausage-making process of, of Congress. True. Uh, and is there any real chance that the Supreme Court could um, rule that the CFPB is unconstitutional, as many uh, judicial experts have declared? I, you know, the, the, the real question, I think, is whether it gets to the Supreme Court, because mm-hmm. if you look at the dynamics of it, I mean, you've had kind of changing parties and, uh, you know, whether the CFPB itself wants to go forward, the idea has kind of changed. But really, it's up to probably up to the company itself, PHH, who was the defendant in the, in the case. So they, they, you know, won pretty big as far as the case, in the case itself, uh, the administrative law judge at the CFPB ruled about $6 million, and then uh, Director Cordray at the time bumped it up to $109 million. And the appellate court, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, said regardless of the constitutionality issue, uh, Cordray was wrong, and it should be $6 million. And so, you know, PHH itself uh, has a lot of, does, has far less motivation to, to appeal it all the way to the Supreme Court. If it did get to the Supreme Court, I, I'm pretty sure that the Supreme Court would reverse the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, and so there was originally a three-panel judge. Uh, two of the judges happened to have been appointed by uh, Republicans who initially ruled that the CFPB's structure was unconstitutional, um, but then it was appealed to the full D.C. Circuit Court, which is, has a lot of Obama appointees on it, and they reversed it. So I think if it got back up to the Supreme Court, I think it would, first of all, I think it would be a very important case for a lot of reasons. The, the questions actually go beyond uh, the CFPB, but to the, you know, the whole administrative state, uh, um, going back to a case in 1935 called Humphrey's Executor. So the court may, in fact, re-examine some of its, some of the decisions that have given rise to the whole administrative state. But if, if you were asking me, I mean, people before said, well, do you think that the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals will find it unconstitutional? It was pretty clear that they were not going to. I mean, if you went to the hearing, you heard the hearing, it wasn't even close. But the Supreme Court, I think, might go back to the original three-judge uh, decision. Mm-hmm. And my final question is, here at the National Discourse, we're about publishing articles from both sides of the political and ideological spectrum to foster a mature and rational dialogue nationwide. Um, What's your reaction to the current state of political discourse, especially as it pertains to the tit-for-tat between uh, McMulvaney and Elizabeth Warren? Um, Do you find that tit-for-tat to be childish and that they should just come together and find a bipartisan solution? Well, you know, a kind of a, a, another interesting question that related to that is that given how, you know, kind of one-sided politically the employees uh, who were hired for the CFPB were, you know, I think it's actually a really good thing to have a intellectually and politically diverse employee base at the CFPB for a couple of reasons. I and mean, first of all, um, you know, some of the really bad 
mistakes that 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 uh, director Cordray made would not have been made if he was actually hearing a full you know circle of ideas as opposed to just one side of ideas but also i th- i think it's just a good thing you know having worked with um you know the CFPB democrats and having worked uh at a, a republican committee um basically you know seeing the two families that never seem to to know each other and get to know each other i think it would be a healthy thing for both groups to be sitting next to each other and to realize that they're not you know who they think they are or the the other group is not who they think they are so um you know for there's just a lot of good reasons why or or to put it differently there's a lot of reasons why the way the hiring went forward and the way the the agency was built really hurt the agency itself and it would have been a much better agency and much um, you know you wouldn't have had a lot of the problems that you had if in fact um it was balanced from the very beginning and just to quickly follow up, uh, do you find the tit-for-tat between Mulvaney and Warren to be childish? Do you think Mulvaney's taking it too far by saying, you know, like, na na boo boo like, I have all these powers, administrative powers? I, you know, I don't, I don't think Mulvaney is actually being childish. I think he is pointing out to them, like, hey, you know, you kept saying you want an independent agency. Well, independent doesn't only mean you're the only one is independent sometimes independent means the other party is in there in and they're independent and you might not like it and so he's you know i don't think he's been particularly juvenile about it i and i you know and i think as far as senator warren goes um i it, it, i wouldn't even characterize it as juvenile i just think a lot of it is is dishonest um you know for example claiming that uh, mulvaney shut down an equifax uh, investigation when in fact she knows that that's not really what happened um, and so you know throwing stuff out on Twitter and sending letters for you know demanding why did you shut it down when when in fact I think she knew that he didn't shut down an Equifax investigation so I don't con- you know I mean I suppose sometimes it degenerates into what seems like childishness but I you know I just think that Mulvaney is making a, a very good point in it you know and um in a very effective way, really. All right, well, former uh, CFPB um, attorney, Ron Rubin, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. I'm glad to be here.